gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 13. We're reading verses 1 through 30. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. 
Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and we confess that in love you have predestined us, set us apart before the foundations of the world. We are chosen and we are precious treasure in your sight. And you have sent your Son in the fulfillment of that love and the manifestation of it in time. In his death and his resurrection, we are adopted and redeemed. And Lord, despite the night and the evil that lives within us, you have brought light and life. You united us to Jesus and made us alive in him. And so today we come to you in need. Need of you to refresh us in the knowledge of this great love. Awaken our hearts. And we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In October of 1962, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The employees at the underground headquarters for the Strategic Air Command located in Nebraska were informed that nuclear war was imminent inside of 13 compressed days. The general in charge, Thomas Power, allowed each of the employees to call home for one last time, presumably. Of course, they weren't allowed to mention anything about what was unfolding. The conversations, which were all recorded, were superficial. They were occupied with mundane things, the stuff of life, skint knees, homework, house chores, sibling rivalries, last words, but hardly the things of first importance. They weren't allowed. Their hands were tied. And all of this stands in stark contrast to what we find here in the second half of John's Gospel. The first half taken up with Jesus' signs and ministry, and the second half taken up with Jesus' passion, but also an overly long conversation between Jesus and his disciples. One final evening ahead of a crisis, what Jesus calls his hour. And though they didn't yet understand everything, Jesus prepares his disciples for everything to come. His demise and then his absence from them. But his speech is not superficial. And his speech is not vague. His speech is not trite, and his speech is not mundane. Jesus, in his last words to his disciples, in words that we still hear today, communicates extensively about the things of first importance, the most important things of life. But we also see in John 13 that there's more than words exchanged. There was also a sign, a symbol, the washing of feet. And John tells us in verse 1 of the chapter 
that Jesus loved his disciples and that he loved them to the end. That is simply to say that Jesus loved them to the end of his earthly life. That is until his death. But also it's saying something more. Because this word behind the original Greek is something complex. The word end. It also carries the sense of completion. And it carries the sense of perfection. It carries the sense of a goal. And so yes, Jesus loved his disciples. And he loved them completely. He loved them perfectly to the end. And so the question for us this morning that's crucial for us to ask and critical for us to answer, it wasn't, what does it look like to be completely and to be perfectly loved by Jesus? And there's three things that we'll see here in these first 30 verses of chapter, first, of chapter 13. First, we'll find that this Jesus who loves us to the end, that he serves us. Second, we'll see that he instructs us. And finally, we'll see that he warns us. And so let's consider each of these this morning. First, in verses 1 through 11, we see that Jesus serves us. In verse 3, we read that Jesus, the beloved and the eternal Son who'd come from the Father, knew that he came from God, and he also knew that he was going back to God. He understood the shape of his life. His hour to depart this world had now arrived, and he was preparing his disciples for that moment. And Jesus' actions here as he shares a meal with his disciples, are to enact that drama of coming from the Father, serving, and then returning to the Father. And what we find in verses 4 through 12 is that Jesus lays aside his outer garments. He then takes the place of a servant, a menial task, and washes the feet of his disciples. And then he puts back on his outer garment, taking his place back at the table. This was all a disruption in, this, in the context of this dinner party. The foot washing was typically done at the reception of guests when they arrive at the home. And so Jesus is doing something intentional. He's doing something deliberate. He is making a large point. It's easy to overlook the symbolic nature of the language, but it is the account of Jesus' life, the taking off of the outer garment, the kneeling to wash, and then the resumption of the garment and taking his place at the table. This is the story of Jesus' life, coming from the Father, serving and returning to the Father. It's what Paul explains in Philippians 2. That Jesus did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and dying on a cross. This is Jesus kneeling at his disciples' feet. He was obedient to the point of death. He submits himself to the will of God. And due to all this, he was exalted. He was raised from the dead and he ascended to God's right hand where he was given the name that is above 
every name. The act of washing the disciples' feet is tied implicitly here in Jesus' actions to his death on the cross. It's an act of sacrifice. It's an act of service. And it's in verse 10 that we find the interpretation of what that act of sacrificial service means. It's here that we understand what Jesus has done for us. And specifically, we find that Jesus, through his cross, has given each one of us, his disciples, a double gift. Now, Peter, in typical fashion, always the boisterous one who's out over his skis, protests when Jesus stoops to wash his feet. This was socially indecent, and it was. It was a breaking of social protocol. Emily Post would not approve. And Jesus says to Peter, though, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, this is y'all, the plural, are clean, but not every one of you. Now, it's interesting to track Jesus' language here and to break down his logic. Because he says that the disciples are clean. You all are clean. They have bathed. But they need to wash their feet. And friends, this beautifully captures the double gift of the gospel. The double gift of the cross of Jesus. And you see, first, we are clean because our sins Our sins past, our sins present, our sins future. That they have been washed. The filth has been removed. That a price has been paid. That those sins are no more. That they are not held in judgment over us. And we have no reason to bathe, Jesus says. Because we've already been made clean. We are forgiven And we're forgiven through the cross of Jesus. It is a free gift. And our sins have expired. They have been exterminated. They've been destroyed because of Jesus' sacrificial sufferings on our behalf. There's no more atonement needed. There's no more atonement that could be provided. This is the first gift. But the second gift... Jesus does say that the feet of the disciples may be washed. Commentators are all over the map on this, and so I've retreated into history and into wisdom. Calvin helpfully points it out. What is spoken of here is not the forgiveness of sins, speaking of the washing of the feet, but the renewal by which Christ gradually and continually delivers his followers completely from the desires of the flesh. And therefore the washing of the feet, after Jesus has said you are already clean, you're already forgiven, the washing of the feet points to that need for sanctification, that progressive work of God in us, in which by his grace he continues to remove the pollution that still remains because we still traffic in this world. And we have the desires of the flesh and the temptations of life and the sins that continue to manifest themselves in our lives, 
even though we are God's forgiven people. And so through this symbolic act, we have a summary of the double gift. The double gift of justification, being declared right with God despite the fact that we are not. But because of Jesus, we are declared innocent. We are declared clean. We are declared forgiven. And the double gift of sanctification. This is the gift of God too. It's the work of God as he progressively renews us and changes us and leads us to turn against our sin. And so yes, we're declared clean by an act of God. And we also have the ongoing work of God to remove our pollution. And this is how Jesus serves those he loves. And he brings us ever deeper into that work and into our understanding of it. Because there is a problem. And the problem we find is the problem that Peter manifests in his protest. Peter senses the inappropriateness of the situation. And he asks Jesus very directly, what are you doing? And in asking Jesus, what is he doing? He is pushing him away with his words, telling him to stop. He actually objects with a new grammatical form, a double negative subjunctive. Translated quite literally, it would say, you will never, ever wash my feet. Emphatically stating, what are you doing? And friends, it's important for us to see that this is not just about proper etiquette. It's not just about social niceties and what is happening in Peter. Jesus tells his disciples that they don't yet fully understand. And in his objection, Peter reveals his ignorance and also our own. For Peter, there is a religious pride hiding just beneath his feigned humility. He was telling Jesus in this feint of humility that this was inappropriate, but he's also protecting himself. And it is this pride that silently often lives inside of us, especially those who inhabit the church. We don't like what's happening here because there's one very significant implication of what's being said. We have to be served. That is, we don't have to just be helped. We have to be served. We have to be bathed and then we have to be cleansed. And at no point are we invited to participate in that. We're not called to assist God in this work. And the implication is that we are completely helpless. And this message of our complete helplessness inflicts a crushing bruise on us. It allows us to understand and to know and to appreciate the depth of human sin and our turn against God, that this is no small problem. It's not a problem that's under our control. It's not a problem that you can fix. But no, a servant has to come. He has to wash you. He has to cleanse you. 
And our pride simply doesn't want to tolerate it. We don't want to own the fact that we're completely unable to do anything about our situation. You see, we might tolerate a God who comes to assist us, filling in some gaps where we've done some wrong things, filling in the the wrongs while we've got our good measures over here. But this isn't what the gospel is saying at all. For Jesus, the gospel is a free and complete washing, a free and complete healing involving a double gift. And if it's not free, then it's nothing at all. And friends, this was Peter's stumbling block, and it's often ours as well. And so receive Jesus' service. And in seeing him bend down and wash the feet of his disciples, know that you are clean. Believing in Jesus, you are clean. And then believing in Jesus, he also continually, day by day, continues to renew and to sanctify and purify you. These are both the works of grace. But second, in verses 12 through 20, this Jesus who perfectly and completely loves us, we see that he also instructs us. In these verses, Jesus uses the foot washing, not only to speak about the double gift, but also to establish an ethic for the new life that he calls us to take up. Jesus is here instructing the church. He's instructing his disciples. He's instructing us about what it means to be his representatives in the world once he is off the scene. Follow with me in verses 14 through 17. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you all also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Jesus here establishes the new way of life that we are to follow in that same servanthood, in that same sacrifice for one another, loving one another. But there are challenges with this, are there not? With some Christian experience, we know the challenges. There is fatigue that sets in. There is relational betrayal. There is disappointment. There's weariness. And we have this command to love, and we're reminded of it week over week, that it's the second great commandment, the summary of the law. And yet we also feel the weight of it. It's represented in that second table of the law. All the commands to love neighbor and to put them ahead of ourselves. And as we experience the rigors of that, and as we experience the defeat, Jesus is also calling us into this high calling to love and serve one another in this sacrificial manner. And so we have to ask the practical question, how do we find the resources to love in this way? 
And friends, it's instructive to recognize that Jesus gives this ethical exhortation to love one another. And that exhortation is rooted in the statement of his great love for us. And so the only way for us, with all of the sin that remains in us, the only way to overcome that self-concern and that self-regard that each of us has, and the only way to become sacrificial and service-oriented towards others, when our service is truly for their good and not just for ourselves, the only way to become people like that is to be rooted and grounded in this great love of God. The gift serves, the gift that Jesus gives, serves as the foundation. It serves as the motivation. And it serves as the ongoing stimulation of all of this love that we are called to in the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus teaches not only the good news of his incarnation, not only the good news of his death, not only the good news of his resurrection, but also the ethic of the Christian life. But he has supplied us every resource we need to create in us this ability to get outside of ourselves and to love others. And this is the second thing that Jesus in loving us does is he instructs us in this new way of life to be his representatives in the world. But third, and finally, in verses 21 through 30, we see that Jesus warns us. We often wouldn't consider this to be an act of love, but Jesus, in loving us completely, in loving us perfectly, he also warns us of the capacities that lie within us. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus is troubled in spirit. And he's troubled because one of his disciples is going to betray him. In this, Jesus is speaking about a real historical event. A man who broke bread with him. In the words of the psalmist, his words were smooth as butter. And he turns against him. It was the, the betrayal of Judas. But in speaking to us about Judas, Jesus is also warning us. He's not just speaking about people then and there. And he's not speaking about people out there and over there. He's speaking to us about our own sinful weaknesses and our own sinful capacities. And friends, it's here that we encounter the great tension of the church. We encounter the church in its being a company of people who are clean and forgiven and being washed. And we see that in the company of that church, there are also those who betray and turn. And the disciple who hears Jesus' warning will not be surprised and undone by that reality. Not be surprised and undone by the abandonment of faith is not surprised and undone by people deconstructing their faith. These are all just the realities of life within the church. It's been rigorous since the earliest days, and it's hard. It's important to reflect on and consider Jesus, Judas's betrayal. 
Oftentimes we think of Judas simply betraying Jesus for money. This is true. He was paid. However, I also would suggest that it's a bit too simplistic to think that his betrayal was simply about financial gain. How did this man who had laid aside everything for three years, journeying with Jesus, seeing all that Jesus had done, how does he come down to this climactic moment where he decides? And then under the encouragement of the evil one, of the accuser of Satan, who is like one blowing a billows on a burning furnace inside of Judas, how is he then persuaded to betray him. And most likely, friends, Judas betrayed Jesus because he became persuaded that Jesus was the wrong horse to bet on. Judas most likely comprehended what Jesus was saying. That he was going to be a Messiah who exercised his reign and his rule over all the earth by being lifted up hoisted onto a cross to draw all the nations in. And friends, what Judas saw in that was most likely phooey. That that's not the way a Messiah is to operate. It was most likely a debate in Judas's mind as to what it meant to be the Son of God. And this surely wasn't the path to bring blessing to the nations. This means of establishing the kingdom made no sense to Judas. And given this, he sold him out because this was going to be a failed attempt anyway. And friends, it is that kind of weariness and it's that kind of fatigue that often informs the modern day Judas. A fatigue that simply grows tired and doesn't see Jesus as hope. A fatigue that grows weary Weary of the weakness inside of the church. Weary of a Jesus who seems long absent. Weary and tired, faith can collapse. And Jesus is warning us here of those great dangers. And friends, this is his great final act of love. Loving his disciples, loving you, loving me. Reminding us that he's come to serve. A double gift. Justifying us and sanctifying us. This is what he does. He comes into the world. He serves and he returns to the Father. He instructs us. Giving us this new ethic. Providing every resource we need to bring that to life. And then he warns us. Warns us of all of our capacities. And how we can turn against him. He's loved you completely. He's loved you perfectly. He's loved you to the end. Listen carefully to these last words. They're not trite. They're not mundane. Certainly not superficial. They're the words of life. Let's ask for his help. Father, in sending your son, he has come to serve He's loved us completely. He's loved us perfectly. We lament the ways in which we don't understand, like the disciples. And the ways like Peter in which we resist. 
Forgive us for all the pride that we mask in our religiosity. Help us to appreciate again anew today your great love revealed in the Son and all that he's done in this double gift. And help us to take up these gifts and to manifest a life of service of others. Help us to get beyond ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you give us awareness of the weakness within us. Give us grace that we persevere, that we walk with Jesus, that we avoid the fatigue and the weariness that leads some to walk away. We're dependent upon you. Everything that we have is a gift of your son. Work within us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.